Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. It is indeed. Good afternoon. Hello, Marlo. Welcome to the web. How are you all? It's Wednesday the 12th of December. Not many more days to Christmas, but we're here every Wednesday talking about business and technology. Today's show, we're going to be talking about, well, three things, really. The first one we're going to talk about is how do you raise money as a startup? The second one is what's going on in Israel. It's a hotbed for technology, and my guest today is going to tell us a lot more about it. And thirdly, sadly, Teresa's going for the chop tonight, possibly. I think she'll survive personally, but she will eventually get the chop. Uh, we're going to be talking about leadership, but not within politics, thankfully. We're going to be talking about leadership within the technology business. You know, who's a good leader, who's a bad leader. Maybe we'll give them a vote of confidence one way or the other. Anyway, joining me to help me go through all of those topics today. Is a good friend of mine. I've known him many years. We'll find out how many in a few minutes. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Hi, Sam. I'm very well, thanks. Yes, we have known each other for a little while. Um, uh, dare we say how long? Yeah, no, go for it. 1994. Oh, I say. What can I say? <laughs> well, yes, back in 1994, we were both in Microsoft, weren't we? We were indeed, yes. So let me give you your full name because I've just said Andrew. It's Andrew Gerard, of course. Yeah. I thanks. say, of course. I know you, of course. But uh, for those who don't, don't know you so Andrew let's let's before we get on with talking about what you're doing today and how how you help I guess let's be very clear up front how you help small startup businesses or big startup businesses don't have to be small um, scale ups yeah. scale up you know how they raise their money but before you got to where you are today how did you get into this wonderful career of IT and technology oh uh, well um, uh, it's a bit of a convoluted um, story I'll try and keep it relatively brief but Do. Uh, but <laughs> I know we've only got We've got an hour, We've got and, an hour and, and a half. I know. <laughs> Christmas is coming. Uh, and there's a vote to be had this evening. We all need to get home for that one, don't we? Um, anyway, suffice to say, um, uh, actually, uh, it was my dad who, who kick-started me into the tech industry, really. Um, he gave me a fantastic piece of advice um, when I was doing my A-levels. Uh, and he said, why, Andrew, why don't you get into this newfangled thing called computing? Um, newfangled, I love it. Newfangled thing. Yes. Um, uh, he was a dentist, but he was a, he's a, a smart chap actually still alive thank thankfully i'm glad he's still with us um uh, in any case he um uh, he said uh you know andrew you're good at maths why don't you go do computing at um uh, at uni so i did a degree in computing and statistics oh nice and um uh, that was all on um, large mainframes um and a lot of programming and coding in languages like pascal cobol um, Fortran assembler. So you've got a proper formal training. I have proper formal training. Wow. A technical background. Unlike I mean, me, which is all made up on the spot. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that that formal training actually um, uh, does give me um, a, quite a, a good perspective on uh, you know a lot of the businesses that I see these days and that I talk to. You know who all you know many of whom claim to have the latest thing. Uh, you know the latest the best thing since sliced bread in technology. Um, and uh, I understand how this stuff works. And so when I'm trying to help them with their business development and their fundraising, which I know we're going to come, yeah, come no, to. That's fine. Um, uh, you know, th this is all great background um, for me to be able to help them. And actually, it quite surprises some of them when, uh, that when they learn that actually I do have formal qualifications and, uh, and, a, and a tech background that, um, uh, you know, that they, they respond very positively that, to that. So, in, uh, so I got into the tech industry through programs. Programming. Actually, okay. Having done my degree, um, I was a software engineer. Um, uh, I was writing commercial databases um, uh, uh, for uh, a company called BTech. 
the Business and Technician Education Council. Um, and one day the IT department said, Andrew, we've got a project for you. Um, we haven't got the time and resources to do it, but because you know how to write code, can you do this? And um, uh, they gave me a copy of DBase 3. <laughs> Um, For those who are younger than about 900 years old, <laughs> DBase 3 was one of the first ever, not even internet enabled, because the internet even wasn't around. Uh, this was a offline database yep, that you absolutely. built stuff in. Yep, yep. Um, uh, I'd, I'd never seen DBase before, um, uh, and uh, they said, right, okay, here it is. This is the project scope. Um, uh, can you do it? And I said, yes, um, uh, it'll take me six weeks. And uh, I spent the first three weeks learning how to uh, to code in DBase, um, self-taught. Um, I went away, hid in a hole for, for three weeks, taught myself how to write DBase, and then spent three weeks writing up the first version. I of remember the doing that as well. I remember using DBase, and then yeah. there was then there was one that you that may Ash- know. That was Ashton Tate, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and where are they uh, now? And well, this is where the story um, uh, progresses because having taught myself how to write in DBase. Uh, uh, I then applied for and talked my way into a, uh, a sales engineer's job at Ashton Tate. Oh, right. Off the back of the fact that um, uh, I knew how to code in DBase. Um, uh, I wasn't particularly good, um, I have to admit. I was competent rather than stellar. Um, uh, but nevertheless, um, I taught my way into Ashton Tate. Um, a lovely chap, Charles, who hired me, I'm still in touch with today, um, uh, t- took me on and um, put me into the sales engineering team where I, uh, I started off in the tech industry as such. And, um, and that's where I really got interested more in the business side of um, uh, the technology industry and what software could do for businesses hmm. rather than the technology itself. So was this, was this Borland? Oh, so <coughs> after Ashton Tate got bought by Borland... right. Um, and that was the first time I got acquired, or I worked with a company that um, uh, that, uh, that I was working with a company that got acquired. And um, Borland bought Ashton Tate, and I transitioned from being a sales engineer into a product manager. They didn't have anybody in Borland that knew D- DBase as well as I did, and um, uh, so again I uh, sat in the MD's office. And um, and told her in no uncertain terms that I wasn't going to stay on the technology side of the business. I wanted to be in marketing, um, because that's. Were where you having a hissy fit? I was not having a hissy fit. <laughs> I, I will I only clear, play if I can go to marketing. I had I had a clear view of where I saw my future at that particular time. Some may say I I don't anymore, but, uh, but at that particular time, no, uh, I didn't want to stay um, on the techie side of things. Um, I was far more interested in the business side of what technology could do and um, uh, and the, the shortcut for me there in the transition from Ashton Tate to Borland was to, uh, was to persuade them that I was the best product manager for DBase that they had. Um, and, that's, and, th- and that's how it turned out. So I did a couple of years at Borland as the, um, uh, the PM for DBase, had a fantastic time. Um, uh, loved the company, loved the people that I worked with. Um, and then along came Microsoft. So yes. In, so in 1994, um, uh, a good friend of mine whom I'd worked with previously at Ashton Tate um, uh, had was the product manager for Access at Microsoft. And she was moving on internally within the company and therefore vacating 
the uh, the product manager's role for us. Is, is this Mrs. Kerry? This is Mrs. Kerry, um, yes. Julie. Um, and um, to her friend Sam, you should know that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, so uh, I... Uh, I got the job as the Access product manager. Um, but more than just being a product manager for Access, um, part of my role was to, uh, was to be the marketing point for uh, Microsoft Office to large organisations. So these were large enterprises that Microsoft was selling um, massive licences for Microsoft Office to. Um, and also part of the desktop team that launched Windows 95, um, so oh, again, I remember yeah, it well. Yeah. So a, um, a, a fantastic experience, a um, lot of hard work, um, a fantastic experience of um, being part of the marketing team that, um, was, well, really, I suppose, a part of the, the team that launched the first large global consumer-oriented operating system that anybody had ever seen. And I'm amazed of the five tracks that we're going to play today that you don't have the Rolling Stones started up, which was the theme tune to Windows 95. Well, it was. Um, I did think about <laughs> I, I did think about that particular track, but um, I decided to go with a, a couple of other things. Have you got something lined up there? Um, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not lining you up. I just, okay. I was, I was. Obviously, we're going to play some of your tracks from your okay. life as well. Yeah. Okay. And you know, I know what tracks are coming up, and sadly, not one of those tracks is the Rolling Stones started up, which I thought it might be given, given what you'd done with Windows ninety five. Mm, yeah. The, um, <laughs> I mean, uh, Start Me Up was a um, was the soundtrack for Microsoft. Um, you know, towards the back end of uh, nineteen ninety five. I remember going to a uh, a large sales and marketing conference um, in Toronto um, where Microsoft gathered together I think it was probably in the region of about 3,000 sales and marketing people I know, worldwide. they were mad in those days, weren't they? Were, they? they were absolutely massive um, and um, there was a great big party at the end of the week um, and uh, they always have an act um, you know, to come on and, uh, and do a gig and uh, they're about, I don't know, 200 300 maybe UK people there um, and we're all sitting there expectantly hoping that it's going to be the Rolling Stones, you know, and, and the buzz in the, uh, amongst us is, have they put the Rolling Stones? Have they put the Rolling Stones? Are they going to play Start Me Up? Start Me Up? Go on. Um, and, the, and the announcer comes on stage and says, ladies and gentlemen, um, Grammy recording artist Kenny G. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you've never seen... 300 people move so quickly to the exit. 3,000, I think um, you mean. Well, it was, the, it was the Brits that were leading uh, the way. I think right. the, rest of the, the rest of them were kind of like, <laughs> uh, uh, sat there thinking, oh, okay, this, this, could, this could be interesting. And, and the rest of us just said, no, no, we're going to hit the clubs. And every, and every club we went into, they played the Rolling Stones. Oh, my Lord. Right. So, so it, that was a, uh, a big song at the time. For, I might have to sneak a little bit of in, just for memory lane for you later. Oh, <laughs> if you insist. Okay. Um, so, Okay, so you you and I were there at Microsoft through that whole period. Um, uh, I I left to join another company called Netscape, but we'll we'll talk maybe more about that because the browser yeah, wars yeah, were won this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, Net yes, Netscape yes. finally yes. won that war today. Yep, yep. Uh, anyway, we'll talk more about maybe that later. Well, because uh, I went to CompuServe. Sorry, um, after when Microsoft, did you? I did. Oh, yeah. I didn't track that one. Um, well, I mean, one of the things I did at Microsoft was a um, a bundle deal for Microsoft Office um, that included 
um, uh, a bunch of other things that um, uh, you know companies like Microsoft would bun- do bundle deals where you didn't just buy the product you bought a, uh, you know, a bundle deal that had a bunch of other stuff um, in the box um, either vouchers or product or services that you could um, buy as a part of the deal and um, uh, in a bundle deal I did uh, towards the back end of 95 um, one of the um, uh, the bits or the services that went into that bundle deal was a subscription to CompuServe. Oh, okay. Um, so I negotiated... CompuServe, for those who don't know what it was, what is CompuServe? Oh, CompuServe was one of the original early online forums services. Right. Um, so is this social media before social media? Before social media, or anybody even knew that it was called social media. These were online communities and forums. Chat forums. Chat forums, mm. um, uh, absolutely. Um, which are, um, are actually quite a lot older than I think a lot of people actually um, um, realise. No, I, one of my first mm. early experiences of the internet was a chat forum back in 95. Mm. Well, um, uh, I was a CompuServe user at the time um, through doing this um, deal with CompuServe for this um, Microsoft bundle deal. And uh, uh, and in negotiating the deal with CompuServe, um, uh, again, um, I suddenly realised that, you know, this was the future. Um, you know, online and the internet was going to be, you know, this is pretty exciting stuff. This is going to be pretty big. Well, you, ha- you were more prescient then than Bill Gates and Steve Barmer because both of those missed the internet. Well, uh, d- um, d- you know, there was that... Um, there's the famous... Um, internal memo that Bill Gates sent round. I don't know if you remember it, but he sent round a memo, to, um, an all-company memo, which, which for Bill Gates was incredibly rare, and you know he hardly ever did that. Um, uh, but when he sent this memo around saying that from now on, Microsoft is a, an internet company, and they tried to build their own internet service and failed abysmally. And that was the MSN that, service, that the closed um, one. No, it was a uh, code name Blackbird, I think. Um, oh, was it? Okay. Uh, there was a closed MSN at one there point. There was, yes. That was it. That was the right. original um, attempt that they made. Yeah, a walled garden internet. Walled garden internet, right. Yeah, that was never going to work. Never going to work. Um, Although Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook, I think, has just found the, uh, you know, the, the beta of that and started to use it. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so, uh, so I went to CompuServe and um, one of the things that CompuServe um, was trying to do is they had these online forums and these online communities and they were, and people were subscribing to these services um, but they wanted to monetize people's use of these forums and the way that they uh, thought that they could do that was through advertising so they hired me to set up their online advertising service so uh, again rather fortunately or fortuitously i got involved very early in the um uh young but nascent uh online digital advertising industry. Okay, good experience. Yeah. Very good experience. I mean, one of the very first online advertising services that, um, uh, you know, uh, happened here in the UK. When in 1996, the, um, uh, the, the UK online advertising industry was 12 people in a pub. Um, 
you know, um, uh, uh, sipping our beers, thinking when when will everybody else get this? You know, we understand this now. Why doesn't the rest of the world understand yes. it? Um, and now, of course, um, uh, we understand it only too well. I mean, we can talk about Sundar Pichai and and, and his um, uh, you know uh, his attendance um, in front of um, the Congress this uh, week. Congress yeah, this Google week CEO. about Google's advertising um, and uh, and algorithms. But at yes. the time in 1996 online advertising, at least as far as CompuServe was concerned, um, uh, was hard coding a graphic ad onto a forum, on a, onto a, um, a staging server on a Sunday night to go live on a Monday morning. And there it would stay until the following Monday morning when the next ad would be hard-coded yeah, onto well, the site. I always said WWW used to stand for the World Wild West. It was just, <laughs> you know, it was just no one had any rules. There was no idea of what to do. You just made it up as you went along. And that was your best example of trying to do that, I guess. And it was, um, and um, and in doing so, we we struggled with actually putting these adverts onto, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, onto the service and uh, and onto the pages. So we conceived. Um, and I was part of a team that did this, um, but as I was responsible for the online advertising, I, I kind of led an effort to try and put together um, an automated advertising solution um, that would work for CompuServe. Um, we realised pretty quickly that we weren't going to be able to develop one for ourselves, so we looked around for a piece of technology um, from a supplier or a vendor that was going to be able to help us. And the piece of tech that we um, uh, we came upon and decided that we were going to, to use was called NetGravity. Oh, I remember them, yeah. Well, um, uh, Many other people may not, but we're old enough and I do remember them, yeah. Uh, th well, again, you know, so I... Uh, on the, so I sat on the CompuServe side of the negotiating table um, for doing a deal where we would buy a license to use NetGravity to do all the digital advertising. Um, and, uh, and we got pretty close to signing that deal, um, except along came AOL. And for the second time in my life, I was working with a company that got acquired. And AOL... Um, uh, having then acquired CompuServe, decided that they didn't need to spend any money on a digital advertising um, uh, enterprise license. So, um, uh, so they took the deal off the table um, and upset quite a lot of people because we all said, oh, well, how are we going to do all of our advertising? We're making money from this. Um, and they said, oh, no, we're going to work something out. Um, but in the meantime, I'd, been having, I'd had a great conversation with the European VP of NetGravity who said, Andrew, you know, you know this advertising stuff, don't you? Um, it's digital advertising. Um, and you're a marketeer. We need a European marketing director. So I joined NetGravity. Oh, okay. So um, you, you jumped ship. So, uh, so I moved from CompuServe, which was then AOL. Um, by the time, and uh, I joined NetGravity, which was a small startup, and this was the first proper um, technology startup that I'd actually worked for and worked with, and I was their first marketing hire outside of North America um, uh, globally, and uh, and uh, I was their European marketing director for um, uh, for a number of years. Um, coincidentally, actually, 
Um, uh, yesterday, I had lunch with three former colleagues from Net Gravity. Um, uh, because and we all keep in touch. You know, it was that kind of yeah. In those in, days, in, in, in the those industry days, was you know, small. So the we all... industry was small. Um, the startup environments. Um, you know, they were fun. They were creative. You worked hard. You played hard. Um, uh, did you, you know, there was no room for politics. Um, one of the things, um, actually, if truth be told, I struggled with a little bit at Microsoft at the time. Um, uh, it was it was a can-do entrepreneurial attitude that we all brought to. The company, and we all had a lot of fun. Um, we all got on, um, and now you know, great friends. Um, Twenty well, years later, strangely, there's a Microsoft reunion for Christmas coming up in uh, Winosh. Ah, okay. I'll let you know about that later. But okay. I mean, yeah, I struggled in Microsoft. I mean, I, I enjoyed my time. I loved the people I worked with. I had some bad bosses, um, which we'll talk about later when we talk well, about we're leadership. We're talk about leadership, and uh, yeah. and I think um, it, you know that we're kind of almost itching to touch on the point that um, you know politics in business. And, uh, and in companies, you know, um, uh, you know, stems from leadership that you have within those companies, um, and that's that's something that, you know, um, to say that I suffered from um, might be overstating it a little bit, but I didn't, I certainly didn't enjoy it. I also think, though, that that, that looking at where our careers are both evolved into, evolved sounds more like pla- than planned, because I know mine was never planned. Um, I, I think the entrepreneurial spirit that we both have meant that the constrained environment of a corporate straitjacket was probably what we were grating against. But we'll come back to that when sure. we go through leadership. So Net Gravity, I mean, obviously the big the big company in that advertising space at the time was DoubleClick, which was the one that got bought by Google, I think. No, Overture it, got bought it by... Well, was th- it Overture, a, wasn't it? Um, uh, there's a step before that, yeah. um, because it was, net, it was at Net Gravity, where, um, as I say, I was the European marketing director. Um, uh, it was Net Gravity that got bought by DoubleClick right. first... Um, which so for the third time in my <laughs> my time, I was. I should have followed you. The, the <laughs> company that got acquired. Um, Did you make any money on each acquisition? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was up and down. Um, you know. Uh, you must have had shares in each one. Yes, I, I, I did, but um, you know, I was still, you know, relatively junior in in some of these organisations. So, okay, so uh, you got you, you got bought a beer, basically. I got bought a beer. Fantastic, you know, um, bit of fish and chips in the beer. Uh, you know, I think that's that's probably about right. I wasn't. I, mean, I certainly wasn't anything like a, you know, a major shareholder in any of these businesses at all. Um, uh, but DoubleClick acquired Net Gravity, and DoubleClick was a, a New York company and um and uh, they had some operations over here in the uk but they didn't have anybody that really knew um uh, enterprise digital advertising um which is where i was now coming from with net gravity so uh and they didn't have any senior marketing people um over here in the uk either so i was the european marketing director for double click which as you quite rightly say um did actually get bought by google um, uh, ultimately, so uh, so in a roundabout way, I can sort of claim that I was Google's first ever <laughs> European marketing director. Go on, make that claim. <laughs> stretch that. Stretch that. <laughs> stretching it out, you know. Uh, <laughs> stretching it out. It's on my CV. <laughs> I want. I, I often say I once nearly went out with Joanna Lumley. No, she just tapped me on the shoulder. That was it. Yeah, go on. Um, uh, and and double click was um, you know for a period it was. Uh, uh, again, you know, a fantastic place to work. Um, uh, great entrepreneurs um, throughout the organisation, getting on, doing things. Um, a fantastic time. Um, and then the bubble burst. 
the dot com the dot com bubble dot com bubble burst and um, uh, and everything got slashed and everything got cut um, and politics um, again came into play um, you know particularly um, you know double click um, and uh, you know that you know I don't want to be stereotypical but that East Coast mentality of um, you know New Yorkers where um, uh, you know um, uh, everything is a deal that has to be crunched. Um, whereas I was far more used to um, the much softer approach of the West Coast, um, Silicon Valley um, way of doing business. Nothing, you know, the pros and cons to both approaches, of course. But uh, um, uh, anyway, so um, uh, so I left DoubleClick during the, uh, the dot-com bubble. I think most people left DoubleClick at the time. Um, um, in fact, the whole, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, online in industry most people left um during the the first dot com bubble and um uh, and I thought well what am i going to do you know um uh, i've got a little bit of a runway um uh, money in bank you mean. money in the bank um yeah runway um, being a, a fundraising term perhaps and we'll talk about that later yes. um uh, and um uh, so i've got a bit of a uh, to, you know, I've got a bit of time to think about what I'm going to do, and um, and I thought, well, you, you know, fortune favors the brave. I'm going to go independent. I'm going to set myself up as a digital marketing consultant. Okay, um, and that was in 2000 or so thereabouts, um, and um, uh, and basically just started going around <coughs> all of the um, you know the clients and the businesses that um, uh, I've been speaking to previously as a as a marketeer as a for a vendor to say look you know i can do digital marketing um you know this is the future um and uh it, you did uh, i can help you um and um uh, so ever since um that's pretty much by and large what i've been doing you know that there, there has been some evolution since then um on a number of different fronts um but once i'd left double click um uh I always kind of knew that I didn't really want to go back into large corporates or enterprises, um, you know, unless they were, it was going to be on my terms. Um, so I did, I did two things, actually, at the time. I, well, I promised myself two things. You know how companies have their values and their missions? Mm -hmm. and, the, and they say, you yeah, know, these Google, are Google, don't do evil, allegedly. Allegedly, yes. Um, we can discuss that one until yes. the cows come home. Um, uh, you know, companies have values. And, I, and I, I, you know, as did DoubleClick. Don't ask me what DoubleClick's values were. I can't remember them. Um, uh, but I can definitely remember the two values that I promised myself when I left DoubleClick um, and became independent. And the first one was that I would only ever work with companies where I could make a difference. Okay. Um, a meaningful difference. And whether that be changing the light bulb in the toilets or rewriting an entire business strategy, um, if I could help make a difference um, to the client or to the business in a meaningful way, then that would be my job satisfaction. Okay, good. And then the second thing that I promised myself was that I would only ever work with people that I actually liked. Um, uh, having had one or two, uh, you know, personal relationships with bosses and co-workers that um, that weren't as productive as perhaps or constructive as perhaps one might have wished them to be. Um, uh, Nicely I, said. I, I said steered your way around that beautifully. Uh, yeah, we could we can talk we can talk off air later. Yes, <laughs> yeah. about some. Yes, of those. when the lawyers aren't listening. When the lawyers aren't listening, we'll, we'll we can uh, we can name names. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, uh, and uh, and by and large, you know, since that day, uh, it, you know, if I'm going to get out of bed uh, in the mornings and, and, and go to work um, on behalf of somebody else to go and do a job that's going to help benefit them, if I don't feel that they value me um, and what I'm doing for them, then... Why bother? Why bother? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's not all been plain sailing. I've had a couple of client failures where um, those failures, and I'm perfectly happy to admit it takes two to tango. Absolutely. Of course it does. Um, uh, and those failures have by and large been down to the breakdown of the personal relationships that I have with the individuals, whether they be the founders, the managing directors or the, or the business owner or manager or whoever it is um uh whereas um uh, you know alternatively to that um i've had some fantastic successes um with clients where um the personal relationships i've had with the um, individuals concerned have been so productive um and so constructive that um and supportive that are you know that i've really felt energized and and i know it's a corporate buzzword but empowered to really uh you know produce some uh, some amazing work for these yeah clients. so when we talk about leadership i am going to ask you who who's who's been your best boss and who's been your worst and why so we will touch on that now look before we go on to what sure. you're doing today yeah. um i want to play your first track oh, okay we're going to play uh nirvana Smells like teen spirit. Now, tell me why we're going to play this track uh, okay. while it's, I cue it up. Uh, okay, it's a much-loved classic. Of course it is, and uh, I'm sure many of your listeners of, um, uh, today will know the track. Um, uh, it was released in 1991, and it was the soundtrack um, for my transition into the tech industry at that particular period in time. Well, enjoy. We'll catch you up after. We're going to talk about what Andrew's doing now as a startup entrepreneur, bringing Israeli companies to the UK and how you raise money.
Jamaica, Nirvana, and a little bit of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Hopefully that brought a few things back for you there, Andrew. I've been headbanging away on the desk, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you stop that? We've got, we have to pay for those desks, you know. Uh, actually, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit too old to be headbanging these days, <laughs> I have to say. Okay, so uh, in this segment of the show, what we're going to do is talk about a little bit about what you're doing today but before we do if if you're listening out there and you want to ask andrew or i a question or you just want to give us some feedback uh let's find out how you can do that very quickly to ask sam a technology question or give him feedback please join our facebook group sam talks technology and leave a comment don't forget to tell your friends Indeed, don't forget to tell your friends. So, Andrew, what are you doing today? So we know that you started off as a university computer geek. You've got your degree yep. mm-hmm. in uh, programming. Yep. You've gone through various iterations of startups from mm-hmm. uh, early d- database companies all the way through Microsoft, all the way through to online digital yep. advertising. Social media, um, all, all that, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Cause yeah, because I, I want to cover a little bit. We, we've sort of missed a little gap. There's a, a friend who's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, uh, Drew, yep. uh, mm-hmm. and you work together at LikeMind. Um, uh, th- we have done and we still do. Um, yeah. we, and we collaborate on, um, on a number of different fronts. Um, and we'll cover... I'd like to cover a little bit about that, but but what are you doing today? So tell tell us what's your main focus now. Um, well, okay, so um, uh, the, my uh, my elevator pitch, um, so to speak, um, that's the classic um, uh, example. You know, when uh, companies are looking to raise money, they have to have what's called their elevator pitch, um, uh, which comes stems from you know having to explain to somebody in an elevator the time it takes for an elevator to go from the top of the hotel to the bottom of the hotel uh, as to what they do. So I do three things. Um, uh, The first thing is that um, I help to import high-tech startups and scale-ups from international countries, places like Israel in particular, um, but also Finland. Um, That's the first thing that I do, and I can talk a little bit about how I got into that. Um, And then the second thing I do is that once these companies are here, um, in the UK, one of the first things that they uh, are all looking for is funding. <laughs> Aren't all startups? And, uh, you know, so they need somebody that can help them, uh, A, prepare to raise that money, but also to find the right types of investors and the right type of money um, in order for them to be able to fuel their growth and their expansion. So that's the second thing that I do. Um, uh, The third thing that I do is once they've got that money is I help them spend it. And I help them spend it on nice. um, business development, strategy, and marketing. That's the day job, really. Right. Um, uh, that's my background, as, as uh, I've already discussed. You know, B two B tech marketing, uh, and um, that's my broad experience um, and expertise is in helping companies with their business development and their growth and their expansion um, through strategy and marketing. And um, uh, you know, the only way that I can really do that is obviously is if these companies have budgets um, and many of these startups and scale-ups don't have uh, readily available cash or budgets in which to do that. So a number of years ago, I, um, I started looking at ways in which I could help them to raise that budget and uh, help them raise their funds in order to uh, you know, then spend it on me to help them do their biz dev. <laughs> okay. So what's the name of the company you currently work for or with? Um, okay. So um, uh, I have a business partner in, uh, in, in Tel Aviv that runs a company called MIW, Marketing Innovation Worldwide, um, uh, which is a business that pulls together 
Israeli high tech startups um, and scale ups, uh, and there there is a difference in you know between the two, and um, and brings them over to the UK. He brings them over. He he brings them together. Brings them over. And we put on events to showcase these companies to prospective investors. Okay. So when was the last showcase that you did? I think you call these missions, don't yes, you? Yes, yes. They're, they're, they're typically termed uh, as missions. And um, the last one we did was a few weeks ago. And how many companies will you bring over? Um, they vary. Between, we get between eight and a dozen or so. Any more than about 12 companies at a time is a little bit, um, it becomes a little bit unmanageable. Um, but um, typically we will, will get 10 companies at a time um, uh, that we bring over. Um, and they're a mixture of um, technology companies they might be in med tech, they might be fintech, um, uh, they might be marketing technology companies, digital media, um, uh, they might be gaming uh, okay. companies. The last mission we had had a gaming company come with us. Nice. And just so we know, when's the next one? Is there one planned? Um, there is one planned. Um, uh, we're just currently looking for a venue, so I don't have a confirmed... If you have a venue in central London? A uh, venue in central London that will host about um, between 100 and 150 people. Um, unfortunately, our, our existing venue, or the venue that we've been using previously, we've outgrown them. And um, where was that? You mentioned that was Mind Space yeah. um, in uh, near Liverpool Street Station. Uh, so somewhere central London, um, you know, if you've got a venue and you've got some space that you'd like to uh, donate, um, <laughs> is that for free? Um, oh, in exchange for advertising? In, in, well, in exchange for a number of different things. Um, uh, primarily, uh, it, it's that we're bringing these high-tech startups um, uh, into the space. So that's um, uh, previously the uh, the agreements and the arrangements that we've had with venues is that we will bring these companies in and also an invited audience of investors um, uh, so that this is an opportunity for the, um, uh, the venue host to promote and showcase themselves. Um, and we find that most venue uh, operators, certainly the ones that um, you know we've been working with, are very happy to do that. Um, you know because they get benefits from it as well. Okay, so uh, I'm an Israeli startup. Yep. Uh, I found you through the web somehow mm -hmm. or through my network. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to come to your next event. Yep. How much do you charge? Um, uh, okay, so there's a. Um, uh, a scaled model for um, for charging, but the entrance for coming on one of these missions is a thousand euros, which is good value. Um, our, we like to think that it's you know it is good value in that uh, in effect uh, any company that signs up to come on one of these missions um, you know gets access to a ready-made audience of investors that otherwise it would cost them an absolute fortune to try and generate for themselves. Yeah. Um, but because we've in invested a lot of, um, well, our, actually I personally have invested a lot of time and, uh, and effort um, to develop a list of contacts and, um, and build relationships with the investor community here in London and, um, and in the wider UK and also um, across Europe to some extent, uh, that you know when we run these events um, we know who we're inviting and you know we can guarantee um within reason you know um that 
you know, that we're going to get a good number of investors along that might be relevant or appropriate for for these companies to pitch to. Um, not all of them will be, um, because there are a mix of companies that come over, and also we get a mix of investors that come to the events. Not all of the um, investors are going to be interested in all of the businesses, and vice versa. Um, but we generally reckon that there's going to be a pretty good match, uh, and we try to do matching before the events take place themselves. So. So if we know, so you filter out. So we filter out. Okay. And we um, uh, and we also uh, work with the uh, the companies that are signed up to come. So we know that um, you know if it's a fintech company, um, and we've got um, you know a number of investors who have invested in fintech companies previously, um, uh, we will highlight that and we will um, we will match them together and say right, okay, company X, you need to meet investors A, B, C. Um, one, two, three. Right. Um, and we will facilitate those those matches. And, and do you, as part of your service, I guess, do you help those companies get what we call pitch ready? Yes, we do. Um, we have um, uh, uh, actually what's called, what we call an investor ready program, um, a part of which um, is... Is that within my thousand... Euros or is that no? Additional? No, this is a, this is in addition. So the companies pay the thousand euros just to, just to be there in the room. Okay. Um, uh, but what's clear is that for many of these companies, and it's not just um, the companies that come on these Israeli missions; it's all startups and scale ups um, uh, suffer from this to some extent. Is that many of them uh, have, or they could do with some assistance, shall we say, in, in helping them to become investor ready. Okay. Um, and what that really means in practical terms is is making sure that they've got the right messages and the right materials ready and available uh, to present themselves to prospective investors, um, which is a very different thing to when you're marketing yourself into a um, you know, business or consumer business market consumer yeah. market yeah. Um, an investor market is a you know a, and an investor audience is looking for specific things um, and specific messages and specific um, materials from the business and from the founder um, primarily that um, that means that you know they need to have those um, materials ready and available. And a pitch deck is the classic thing. Yeah, know. I mean, I often found when I was pitching for money or helping others pitch, um, getting that one line at the beginning which would hook in the investor. You know, we're the Google of or we're the Uber of because investors see so many pitches, and you know, some of them get it quickly and some don't. But if you can hook them in that first slide fundamentally uh, you, you've pretty much got at least their attention that's the, that's even half the battle uh, uh, absolutely um, uh, it is critical that pitch deck um, that you send to um, you know, investors uh, you know is in effect it's the door opener it's not going to land you the deal or it could land you the deal I should say um, sometimes it can do but the pitch deck is really um, do you know, it, it, it's the way in which the business can stimulate and generate the interest from the investor that means that they're going to want to start the conversation, and the, and you know, and a pitch deck really is it's just a presentation um, uh, to all intents and purposes, and it's those first few slides, as you quite rightly say, that have to really grab the attention of the investor, and that tagline is critical, um, uh, absolutely, because um, investors see so many pitches from startups saying we are the Google of or we are the Uber of 
um, that they become almost immune to it, um, and they, uh, you know, they they go, oh God, no, not another. Yeah, Uber the rolling off. eyes. Yeah. yeah, the rolling eyes, um, and the, you know, they say, oh no, not another. Um, we are the Airbnb of such and such a. I, in fact, I saw that. Um, I saw the Airbnb of luxury yachting was a pitch deck I saw last year. Oh, well, I mean, um, at least I get what the business does. Um, I, I, I know what it does straight away. I mean, but, they're renting out luxury uh, yachts. Yeah, but it's what an investor would call it's a me too play. Why would I be interested in, um, you know, a me too play? So, okay. Um, uh, anyway. I don't think we can use the me too hashtag anymore no, now. No, no, actually, yes, you're right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you could use that one anymore. Um, uh, all right, we'll have to find something different. <laughs> uh, um, suffice to say that, you know, any business that's looking to raise funding um, from uh, an investor community, um, and investors can be, you know, angels, it could be high net worths, they could be individuals, um, uh, could be venture capital companies, could be private equity if you're big enough. Um, uh, and you can attract, um, you know, a private equity firm. Then, then you're into serious money. Um, you know, tens and tens of millions yep. of, um, of pounds, even hundreds of millions of pounds for private equity. Um, but our sweet spot generally is around about the two to five million dollars um, or, or pounds, which is often called Series A. Uh, which is often called Series A, um, because it's at that level that um, businesses have probably got enough business already happening for them and enough traction. They've proven the model. They've proven model, absolutely. Um, And um, they've got a... Um, you know they've got a, an exec team in place that is um, you know starting to prove its worth. Um, at which point, proper investors, VCs that are looking to um, uh, you know invest in Series A type companies, will you know then become interested. Um, uh, and so that's that's part of what I do um, for these companies that come over, or, or any business actually that's based here in the UK. If there are any businesses out there and you're looking, um, you know, to fuel your next level of growth, um, and you're looking to, uh, to raise money, then this is the process that, um, uh, you know, that, that you need to go through in order to get that. So, okay. So I've paid my thousand, I've gone in the room. How do, how do you make your money next? I mean, do you take a commission, equity stake? What's your 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 next stage so with those the, companies? So the investor ready program is is twofold. Um, what we do is we take these companies through a process of getting them to a point at which they um, are, are investable. Um, you know, because many of them are not, um, and they need help in uh, you know getting them to a point at which they have got the materials and the messaging, and they can answer the questions and they can do the Q and A with an investor. Um, uh, and uh, and that's a process that takes uh, you know a period of time, um, uh, and you know time and effort has to be paid for on a project fee, um, and then if we're successful in finding and helping that business actually do a raise, then we'll take a percentage commission um, of the raise, and that's that's pretty standard. That's pretty typical in the industry. Okay, so you, you you've uh, taken them through to the point where they raise some money. Now, having done this myself, mm-hmm. um, one of the challenges is, uh, you know, if you raise money in the USA, the investors typically don't like UK companies doing that because they have to be on the board and they don't want to travel. So yep. you've got Israeli companies that mm-hmm. you're raising money for in the UK. So how do you overcome that same challenge of the investors having to be on the board of an Israeli company? Well, 
we kind of start with the uh, with the company themselves and whether they're Israeli or whether they're Finnish or whether they're um, a, a UK company doesn't really um, matter so much in really it's what the company is looking to try and do with the money that um, they're going to raise and what type of investor um, is going to make sense for them and there are lots of different types um, I've mentioned a few already, um, you know, high net worth individuals, angels, there are syndicates, um, uh, you know, there are VC companies, um, you know, I, I mentioned private equity, although that's a, a, a slightly um, uh, off the scale example there. Um, it really depends on what the company is looking to try and do with the money. You know, are they looking to it to develop product? Um, develop technology? Are they looking to um, hire? Um, uh, is it purely for business development, marketing, sales, business expansion, international growth, um, etc., etc.? And this is the process that we go through with these companies to establish um, what types of investors um, and which sectors of investment are going to be appropriate for them. And um, uh, if a company is looking to raise money to fuel their international expansion, um, and I'm talking to um, a Finnish company at the moment who's just raised um, money from a London VC, um, uh, where that investment is contingent on the company spending a significant percentage of that investment on business. You helping them spend that. Me helping them spend <laughs> that money um, here in the UK. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and at some point, it is highly likely that that company's CEO, or at least one of the senior execs, if not the CEO himself, will actually have to come over and base themselves um, here in London. But there's a company that um, has a clear... Uh, vision of what they're looking to try and achieve and if they're going to grow their business internationally um, then by seeking investment um, from the London markets uh, makes a lot of sense for them because it kind of puts them in the position whereby they are now having to to do that and execute on the promise that um, you know the investment is going to be made um, in the UK markets. Um, so that company, if it's successful in what it's trying to do, um, will be in a much better position longer term um, for further expansion. And the investor, having placed a contingent on the investment of it being spent here in the UK, now has a business in its portfolio that is far more likely to succeed in further expansion internationally elsewhere outside of the UK because of the experience that they're now going through in setting themselves up and doing their business development here. Okay, so this brings me to a, a question that I've wanted to ask you. Um, Brexit. Oh. Now, I've mentioned the rude word. Okay. <clears throat> How are we seeing an effect right now on international companies looking for money in London or investors looking outside? What what effect, if any, has Brexit currently got or is it too soon to know? Um, no, uh, I think um, Brexit has had an effect um, uh, and... Th- you know the effect that it continues to have. Um, you know, is is anybody's guess to a large extent. But um, th- let me just take you back um, two and a half years um, uh, very quickly. Um, uh, quick, quick couple of stories. Um, on uh, what date was the referendum? It was June the twenty third, wasn't it? Oh, think, now um, you've got me. Yeah. Is it Thursday? Do you know? Anyway, I'd have to look back in my anyway, diary. The day after 
Um, uh, uh, literally nine o'clock the day after, I think. When we're Friday, all in shock. Friday, June the 24th. Um, you know, my wife and I have got up, we switched the telly on, we, you know, we're both standing there in shock, you know, going, oh my gosh, what's just happened? Um, nine o'clock that morning, um, I had a conference call with a, an Israeli client in Jerusalem. Um, we hadn't signed the deal um, uh, and it was a fundraising um, uh, deal. Um, it was worth a reasonable amount of um, uh, money, you know, potentially for the actual fundraise itself. And um, at nine o'clock, um, I had the conference call with the client in Jerusalem and, and he said, right, we're taking the deal off the table. So oh my God. Brexit... Um, had an immediate effect. Had an immediate effect on my business wow. at that particular at that particular point in time. Um, and uh, why did they want to take it off the table? Uncertain. Uncertainty. Yeah. Um, uh, it was, you know, um, uh, they said to me, uh, Andrew, you, you know, what's going to happen? Um, uh, what are we going to do? Um, and I, you know, in all honesty, um, uh, turned around to them and said, uh, you know, on the phone, on the call, to say, uh, uh, honestly, I really don't know what effect this is going to have um you know we'll have to wait and see you know how this affects um uh, investors and um and the ability to raise funds so it had an immediate negative effect at that particular um point in time um uh, but actually i think um uh, we're a lot more positive and bullish about um uh, the, the investments uh, you know fundraising now um after two and a half years since brexit Okay, that surprises me that you're more bullish. I thought, I thought, given where we are with a potential Theresa May leadership challenge, no deal possibly. Well, um, th- many of these businesses are um, uh, are uh, um, how to turn them. I mean, they're knowledge industries. They're knowledge companies. Um, you know, they're um, uh, you know they they don't have any cross border controls. So. And in that respect, they don't suffer from, you know, the effects of Brexit um, in other more traditional manufacturing type industries. You're listening to Sam Talks Technology, the UK's number one technology show. At least that's what Sam told me to say.
So, welcome back to Sound Talks Technology. Good afternoon, Marlowe. Good afternoon, Webb. Yes, that was a track called Automatica by Nigel Stanford, and that was one of your second tracks, Andrew. It was, yes. Now, what we were watching, because uh, we were watching on YouTube, if you look it up, Automatica by Nigel Stanford, it was unbelievable. It was robots playing all that music. That yeah. was not done with any humans at all. No, it's all um, uh, that the entire track, all of those instruments that um, you've been listening to, um, uh, played live by um, uh, yeah um, robots, um, yeah, but not so human robots. I mean, uh, actual you know, like you'd expect to see in a factory, kind of robotic arms. Yeah, and they were playing actual instruments. They weren't just programmed like a synthetic. They were playing a proper drum set, a proper guitar. Yep. That was it's amazing, and, uh, and and I kind of selected that as um, uh, as one of the tracks that uh, I thought it might be um, kind of fun and interesting to play because, uh, um, of course, we're experiencing um, uh, a little bit of a well revolution or evolution, depending on how you look at it, in uh, in the way that robots are are starting to come into you know everyday life, you know, far more commonplace than I think um, a lot of us actually appreciate or realise. Well, we are going through what I think is the third revolution, the AI digital revolution really now kicking mm, in mm, mm. Um, you know we've had mm. the in agricultural revolution yep. the industrial and now I think we're really beginning to see the beginnings of the AI revolution um, I would agree um, uh, although my personal view on AI um, is that much of what purports to be AI is really just machine learning and it's just algorithms that are, yeah. that are doing things it's not true I, I'm reading a really good book at the moment um, called Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom I yes I've read that um, uh, listeners want a, want a book recommendation um, I don't recommend recommend it lightly though um the the language is really quite dense and it's quite um uh you have to have your brains in <laughs> i'm not sure that you know it's taken me quite a while to get through it and i have to uh, i have to put it down and then uh, and then i have to pick it back up again and go right okay do i understand what's really being said here um a lot of it's quite theoretical and, and philosophical in terms of um what ai um means but um uh, very interesting if any of your listeners are interested in ai and want to pick that up yeah um, two types of AI, yeah. which is, you know, uh, AI as you described it, or machine learning, the very basic element, and then there's general AI, yep. which is when the machines actually take over and start doing it mm, themselves. Mm, mm. Uh, and we, we aren't there and we're not even close to it yet. I don't think so, no. I mean, perhaps a better starting point for people might be Ray Kurzweil and and the singularity yeah. is near. Um, I'm sure if uh, you know, there's a few people out there that, are, that may well have read that um, uh, you know, try that one. So the other book you mentioned you're reading is a book I've just finished as well, uh, Yuri Naval's 21 Lessons for the yeah, 21st yeah, Century. Yeah, don't give the game away. I don't want any spoiler alerts, Sam. <laughs> well, you. you can't give the game away, actually, because it's, 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 it's 35 books, actually. Yes, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, each yeah. chapter in itself yeah. is a book. Um, but one thing he mentioned in his two previous books, one uh, his books were Sapiens and Homo Deus, uh, is something that uh, I, I want to start to talk about because... Um, he mentioned what he called uh, the, the, the great unwanted. Um, yep. He defines 80% of the working population as the great unwanted is mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we just look, talked about machines taking over. You know, I mean, we've got it in very basic terms. I mean, I can go into London here, park at Maidenhead. I can get my ticket, use my phone to pay for it. I can get on a train, pay for it with a credit card, contactless, straight through onto a train. The only person I've actually met in that whole journey is the required train driver right now, which actually isn't required because we know that doesn't need to be there. It's just a union that's forcing it. Yep. Um, so we're beginning to see 
those sorts of jobs being removed a lot, but it's also more intelligent jobs in the white-collar space that are beginning to be removed. Um, so the riots in France this is where I want to start off with. The riots in France, they, they were really about, and, and Brexit, I guess, and Trump, they're all lumped into that same thing. I think it's the majority of people are beginning to realise that, you know, for them, they're not wanted anymore. There isn't an opportunity you know, their, their living standards are dropping. You've got the gig economy. You've got um, less opportunity. Uh, Where yeah. does this mm-hmm. go? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not sure that I have a, um, a ready-made answer that's going to be meaningful. For, right, next for guest. <laughs> but, um, no, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I think it's, um, you know, it's symptomatic of, uh, you know, the way in which, you know, societies are evolving and, and starting to develop. Um, uh, much of this evolution is not necessarily being driven by um, you know technology as such um, uh, but it is enabling uh, you know many of the changes that we are witnessing which are causing some of the developments that uh, you know are, are happening and taking place in society you know and if what we've witnessed recently with um, you know with brexit and then you know with uh, you know macron in france and and trump in the us and in other countries and societies around the world i mean uh, you know we can mention brazil um, also as a uh, yep a, a recent right wing uh, populist recent, vote yeah absolutely yep. um, you know how are the, you know how are these changes um, uh, you know why and how are these changes taking place you know that that you know, is technology a part of that, or is it just down to the leaders? Um, you know, within these societies and within the, within these countries, um, you know, I suspect it's a combination of um, of a whole range of different factors. And uh, you know, I'm perhaps not the uh, the qualified person. To be no, no. To I mean, you know, look, but, you're well yeah. read. Um, you have an opinion, and, and mm-hmm. you know, France France surprised me. I mean. Brexit was a, a vote by, you know, as much as I was a, a Remainer, the Leave voters in the majority, apart from the small percentage of racists that just didn't want anyone here. Um, but a lot of them weren't, and, and a lot of them were, you know, uh, tired of the same old, same old, seeing their opportunities dwindling away. Markets mm, weren't mm-hmm. giving them mm-hmm. the lifestyle that they were promised, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. So they, they, they were voting for change, right? Yep. Trump's Midwest uh, heartland, you know, the coal industries are going, the steel industries are going, the car industries are going, they weren't getting jobs. And if there were industries there, robots were doing those jobs. So they were just voting for change. But the one that really surprised me was France. Mm, um, mm. Because Macron, you know, by all accounts, is not doing a good job if you're French, clearly. Um, but what he was saying was, I- I'm going to put fuel prices up, I'm going to make it try and get things to be greener, cleaner. Yeah. Um, and the French went, no, that is not happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was a very good Gallic shrug um, yes. <laughs> uh, here in the studio. <laughs> Sam, well done. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I agree. And, and, you know, I think he has backtracked um, somewhat. And, uh, and ha- you know, he's been... Um, you know whether it's a humiliating climb down or, or however you term it. I think he has had to change his position um, uh, on some of those developments that he was, um, you know, looking to try and introduce. Um, you know whether or not you know uh, the, the French are um, you know are they you know are they rioting um, you know in, in protest? Are they the the flag? 
I know this was a massive of, um, riot. I mean, it was across uh, the border. Yeah. And it, it, it was a riot. It was their Brexit, but it, without a vote. It was their, their, they saying enough's enough. Austerity, lack of, lack of opportunity, reduction in lifestyle values. Um, they were just simply saying, we, we don't want this life. We want a better life. And... The, 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 I think the challenge, um, the challenge there, though, is that um, uh, you know Macron is um, uh, you know very centrist, and um, uh, you know from my own understanding of this, and, and others may may be better informed than I, but uh, you know to a large extent, both the hard left and the hard right in France have largely been marginalised by Macron's central um, and centrist stance. So if the French people um, um, look to try and reject you know, leadership that is trying to, you know, maintain a central and, and uh, approach to what they're trying to do, then where do they go next? You know, well, do they split hard left and hard right? I think they will. I think, I mean, Marie Le Pen probably wasn't appetising enough, but who knows what's coming next? You know, Italy, uh, Holland has gone very populist. Greece has gone very populist, which I return fascist um which is just the new word for fascism mm, mm. um but you know what i think we're seeing and taking this back to the uh, music that we were playing and the book you know the 21st rules of the 21st century this is the beginnings of the ripples of uh human um pushback against the fact that what we're getting now is less need for humans um, at that level, I mean, at, at that level, yes. Um, you know, it, it, but is it a revolution or is it evolution? Um, uh, and I think that. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of um, uh, scaremongers who are saying that you know that robotics and automation and uh, and, and AI are going to replace humans um, uh, to an extent whereby you know that we'll have large sectors um, uh, of society that um, are in effect redundant. Um, but, yeah, but what do you do with them if they're redundant? Um, uh, and Universal basic income. Well, I mean, that, that's obviously um, a, an idea that has been discussed and, and debated, um, you know, quite So widely. for those who you don't know what that is, that's fundamentally the government paying you to have a living wage to stay at home to do nothing. And there are um, uh, societies, um, and in fact, there are, you know, towns and, um, and places in... Uh, you know places like um, Finland and, and elsewhere. You know where they ha where they have experimented with this and they have trialed it, and uh, and it has been shown to have some success. Um, whether that be qualified or otherwise, uh, I, I don't know at this particular point. Um, uh, however, on the other hand, you know because I work a lot with um, uh, you know technology startups that are producing <laughs> much of the technological evolution, or in or in some cases revolutions that um, uh, are supposedly driving much of this um you know change um i also get to see some of the fantastic ideas and technologies that are coming down the road that are going to actually aid and assist you know where where once somebody might have been a machine worker in in a in a factory tomorrow you know those skills that they learn at school won't be about how to operate a machine those skills that they learn at school will be about how to do the school other. hasn't moved on schools are still teaching victorian english ethics of engineering and mathematics now maths i get right but we get this very much uh you know, uh, in the empire, we needed bookkeepers and clerks and, you know, engineers. And we've still got that. 
you know, most kids aren't learning to program in HTML, JavaScript, any of those future skills. They still haven't. And why? Because we don't have enough teachers who even understand that, let alone teach it. Um, it, it's a rather sad statement of affairs, you know, when many of the um, uh, you know successful companies that are developing um, edutech, edu ed, um, education uh, technology, technologies, yeah. um, uh, you know, are, are there in the first place. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure many of us would probably uh, sympathise with the view that we need to have an education system that trains and teaches these skills. Um, at their very core um, and as I say it's a sad indictment of the state of affairs that we have to have um, an edutech um, sector um, because if these skills were being taught we wouldn't have one there wouldn't be a need for yeah well um, we're just not going to get one and we're just not going to get one um, uh, at least not at this particular point in time although there are a number of concerted efforts around um, uh, you know trying to bridge what's you know the so-called skills gap um, uh, between you know the need and the demand for uh, you know digital skills in particular um, uh, and the abilities of our educational system to produce people with enough skills and qualifications that are going to be able to satisfy that need um, you know again maybe this is something that needs to be uh, you know, campaigned on. Um, maybe we need another Brexit on it. Um, <laughs> Not Sam, what a referendum be, <laughs> on it. <laughs> you could you could be the, uh, the you know lead um, campaigner for um, Ed's Ed's kit or something. Well, I, I'd be a lead campaigner on getting more technology yeah, into schools. Yeah, I certainly yeah. would be on that. And I think yeah. you know I, I get both my children at the moment to learn to do basics yeah. in programming. Mm -hmm. uh, to build websites, to mm. learn how to use mm. things like Photoshop. Mm. and mm -hmm. Those just... St I, I consider those today to be just the same as learning grammar or learning English or learning maths. Um, I, I would agree. Um, th there is a slight um, uh, you know, caveat that I would bring to this particular uh, conversation, though, and that is um, uh, I think that in any role or any job of the future or any role that requires you know, so-called... Um, you know, hard skills um, uh, that that need you know uh, robotic um, uh, automation of of any kind um, uh, are likely to be replaced. So, uh, so any industry or profession, and I include you know the law profession and, and accountants and and doctors in this as well, um, where the end product um, is you know is. The, the product of something that has mm. ha a process that has taken place that can be mechanized or can be yep. automated um, those are the very skills in the industries that are going to um, you know that are going to be disrupted and changed so I do think that um, uh, you know we we need to be producing a workforce um, uh, that also has so-called soft skills um, you know the social skills and and the ability to um, you know, treat people as people. Yeah, what we call EQ rather than IQ. EQ rather than IQ, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so, okay, so we've got this situation with Macron, we've got the mm. situation with tonight with Theresa May, God knows what's going to happen there tonight. Um, we've got the, uh, the horrible scenario of Trump for at least another two years. Um, Have we? Well, <laughs> impeach, impeach, impeach. <laughs> um, but it, let, let's assume that he uh, unfortunately will survive it. Um, 
where do we in tech? Let's move back to tech a little bit. So we both talked about working for Microsoft much Mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And Microsoft, after we left, not because we left, but after we left, seemed to be... Improved. (laughs) Well, yes, locally improved, but nationally, no. Um, It it went through uh, stagflation, I'd say, you know, in the sense of, you know, I think the DOJ, the Department of Justice, put a break on it with its um, breaking up of its sort of monopolistic mm. position of mm. Windows and Office. Mm. Yep. Uh, it took years to recover. Now, Steve Barmer took over from Bill Gates, um, universally seen as a poor boss, I would say. Share price didn't move. He was energetic, I'll give him that. Yeah, um, but he was also myopic. Yes. Um, he missed the whole mobile technology space. He dismissed iPhones. Um, yeah. Uh, it, you know, well, he dismissed Apple generally um, uh, and and thought that iPhones were never going to catch on. But uh, Yeah, so that whole thing. But, yeah. you know, the new CEO, Sachin Adali, has just amazingly turned around in the last, I don't know, probably 10 years, let's say. Mm. I say mm. just. Um, Microsoft into the world's most valuable company only for a few moments it took over Apple again that's mm. quite amazing mm, mm, I, I would agree and um, uh, at, I think appointing Nadella was probably you know the, the, the best and smartest thing that um, you know the, the, the board at, uh, at Microsoft could have done um, and did do um, but then yeah, I also like to think that um, you know the difference between then and now with a with a business like um, Microsoft is you know the, the culture and the humanity you know that the leader brings to the particular organization um, you know uh, that Balmer had his you know plus points um, you know he, he was a bit um, if I'm allowed to, to say he was a bit Marmite um, you know people either loved him or hated him yeah. um, uh, and uh, you know that can be said of any leader um, uh, and, and tech leaders who now um, are held up as you know uh, the leading business, uh, you know leaders of the world. You know when you think of the leaders of um, you know Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, um, you know Tesla. Um, you know these leaders are all so-called beacons of the business world, um, leading lights of the business world. Um, but what is it about them that makes them successful in what they do? And are they as successful as, uh, as perhaps we would like them to be? Well, I mean, of the, that list you just gave, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg just oversaw a $126 billion loss in his company. Uh, he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elon Musk yep. was uh, severely wrapped over the knuckles by the SEC. He was. Um, you know, Google is is flatlining a little bit you know it's it's killed more projects than i know what to do with google plus has just been pulled this week it has yeah you know um you know so is Sundra Bezos P- has his problems with amazon um yeah i mean although i'd say with amazon you know i, I they they have many tentacles aws is certainly growing massively the voice assistant her majesty herself alexa is doing well mm-hmm um, uh, that Apple isn't quite the um, you know the shining example that um, perhaps it, it would have been um, pre Tim Cook. But, well, is uh, Tim Cook the new Steve Barmer? Is he just basically living off Jobs' legacy? Tim Cook could not be the new Steve Balmer. Well, no, a different it, Steve Balmer. What I mean by that is, you know, uh, missing the next, uh, missing the next big wave. I mean, you know, Siri is fundamentally rubbish. Um, it is not Google Assistant or, or Amazon Alexa, and never will be right now. I think now. that um, you know, Apple benefited hugely from the singularity of um, Steve Jobs and you know his vision and his drive and his energy to produce. 
produce the products that um, you know he not felt that Apple that he wanted Apple to produce um, and you know with his with his passing um, you know has that singularity gone from Apple has that singular vision and its ability to produce products um, you know to the exacting standards that Jobs had um, has that dissipated somewhat um, I, I, I don't know um, you know I, I still think Apple is a fantastic company that produces fantastic products um, uh, and you know commercially uh, it, it's a massive success so you can't argue against that um, but there are parts of the business um, or aspects of the business where you think, well, that's not quite how I remember it um, when it was Steve Jobs that um, uh, that was in charge. You know, and, and with all of these tech giants, um, that, that's going to be the case. You know, they go through um, evolutions. You know, they go through m- uh, maturity phases. Microsoft went through it. Google's been through it. Apple's been through it. You know, they all go through phases. Um, you know, uh, Zuckerberg on Facebook has been through um, a, a lot of ups and downs. Um, you know, they suddenly find themselves... Um, at the steering wheel of a monster truck um, and they just need to try and find, uh, you know, a way in which they can steer it um, successfully without too much of the, you know, too many wheels for it. No, I I understand. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's got the unenviable task of trying to manage 2.2 million people Mm. per day Mm. online active Mm. at Mm. the same time. Mm. Um, I think that's, no one in history has ever had to do that. So he's learning on the job. Mm literally. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that uh, I'm quite amazed, you know, such in Adali, going back to him, mm-hmm. has turned Microsoft from this closed, uh, myopic company into an open source. So they now p- support Linux. Yep. This week, the browser war was finally dead. Yep, yep. Uh, as an ex-Netscape product marketing manager, yes, we got you. <laughs> um, it took us a while, but we got there. No, it's Microsoft IE, or Edge, as it's now called, is yep. now moving to Chromium base. Yep. So, you know, I, I admire Sachin Adali. Sunjar Bhattai, uh, Sunjar Prachai, uh, the CEO of Google, um, seems to not be doing as good a job, in my opinion. He had the backlash of his staff recently. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I, I, Google, I, I, I can't see where Google's going. Yes, the search engine's great, but I can't see the vision anymore. Um, I, I think that's a that's a tricky one. I mean, it's obviously it, it's it's such a, a huge organisation now um, that uh, it, you know they um, they have made uh, an attempt. Obviously, you know, with with the um, uh, you know in starting um, not starting but you know calling it Alphabet and then you know and then putting in various different divisions of the company um, uh, to address um, uh, certain things. I mean, Google does have the benefit of, um, of scale and, uh, you know, it, it's got enough resources in order to be able to, you know, uh, place a few bets. And if it loses a few, then hey-ho, you know, never mind. We lost, we lost a couple of bets, but at least we made a few good ones. But I, I'm losing track of the good mm, ones yeah, now. Yeah. You know, they, they've closed more instant messenger and chat services than I or launched and closed um waymo seems to be a good one but Mm. that's a moonshot Mm. um Mm -hmm. you've got i don't know android but you know again it's it's pixel 3 sales compared to the iphone is minuscule anyway we're gonna have to wrap it up here fairly quickly soon andrew um 
I just before you go, mm-hmm. I want to say first of all, thank you very much for coming in today. Oh no, my pleasure. I and mean, this is this has been great. Thanks for asking me along. Now, if people want to be able to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing it? Uh, can we do that through the show? Or yep, um, on yep. face, I'm on Facebook. Um, look me up on Facebook, Andrew Gerard. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, look me up on any social platform. Even just Google me. Yeah. <laughs> or use a use a search engine of your choice yes. to, uh, to to look me yeah. up. Don't look um, him up on Bing. God knows what you'll find. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.